0: Welcome to Revaluing Care in the Times of COVID-19, a podcast series that seeks to examine the power of care work in the context of the current pandemic. As we navigate this uncertain time of economic, social, political, and environmental turmoil, many feminists, activists, and scholars have declared these troubles as an interrelated crisis of care. Now is a time to reimagine how care fits into our society in a way that is more equal and just. This podcast is part of a broader network of 30 scholars from 16 countries called Revaluing Care and the Global Economy, an ongoing project funded by Bass Connections and the Gender, Sexuality, and Feminist Studies Department at Duke University. The Revaluing Care project is developed along three lines of research, metrics of care, governance, and social practices. This podcast series not only shares the core ideas of this project, but also seeks to identify what is at stake in these care issues of our time. 2019 I taught a course on the regulatory state and we talked a lot about essential workers because we, we were in the middle of a government shutdown in the United States um, and that was a defining piece of that conversation. Um, and then The concept of essential workers has really come back um, to the fore in a major way since the beginning of the COVID-19 pandemic to signify a fairly broad range of work and care from grocery clerks to teachers, poultry workers to firefighters. And so in today's panel, I'm hoping that we can take a closer look at the legal dimensions of the concept of the essential worker you know does this term have any meaning as a legal category and if so how is that meaning currently operating um, and if not how might we kind of imagine what this legal category might look like in a way that would adequately value the care work that essential workers perform and I think this is especially important and timely given that many of today's essential workers lack a lot of the basic labor protections and job security even as, as um Professor Olcott mentioned, they're publicly lauded for their service and sacrifice. So by the end of today's discussion, I um, hope we can have a better understanding of where essential workers fit into local and international law, and maybe begin to sort of understand why it is that our most valued workers are so often the most vulnerable. I am very grateful that we've managed to assemble. i sort of team of folks who cover a wide range of geographic um,
1: and jurisdictional variety. So my name is Candida Leone. I'm an assistant professor of private law in Amsterdam, the Netherlands.
0: Her research investigated contractualization of consumption and labor relationships in the European Union, and she teaches courses in private law, consumer rights, and European contract law.
2: Everyone. I'm Pedro Augusto gravata a very long Latin American name, as usual, and I'm a professor of law at the University of Minas Gerais in Brazil.
0: And he's been a visiting researcher at the International Labor Organization, the Institute for Advanced Studies, Nantes, and the University of Strasbourg. And his research generally focuses on social law theory, precarious and informal workers, as well as inter- the intersections with gender and sexuality.
3: Hi there. My name is Shupriya Routh. I'm a faculty member at the University of Victoria Faculty of Law in British Columbia, Canada.
0: Shupriya's research interests include international labor law and atypical or informal workers in the global south. Um, His current research explores the role of human rights guarantees in informal and precarious workers' aspirations, as well as innovative workers' organization initiatives in the global south. So I'm really excited to hear from all of you today. I think based on your combined expertise, we can have a pretty productive and wide ranging conversation. To get us started, really easy, simple question. In one sentence, how would you define essential work?
3: Let me try and explain uh, what essential work is uh, pretty quickly. And my references here um, are going to be British Columbia. So the first one is, um, how essential services are defined under the British Columbia Labor Relations Code. And second one is how it's defined under the Emergency Program Act. Emergency Program Act is what is invoked right now during COVID. So first let's look at uh, how it's defined under the BC Labor Relations. So essential services are those that are central to the health, safety, or welfare of the residents of British Columbia and absence of essential services pose immediate and serious danger to the health, safety and welfare. So part of the labor relations code. And then under the Emergency Program Act under which we are regulated right now during COVID, essential services are those services essential to preserving life, health, public safety, and basic societal function. They are the services British Columbians come to rely on in their daily lives. Thus, you'd see under the Labor Relations Code, the idea of essential services is centrally associated with immediate and serious danger. It's the urgency rather than the nature of service that makes it essential. Whereas under the emergency code, and it's quite interesting in here, essential services are those that are essential for preserving life, uh, health, and public safety. The definition does not include that urgency component
0: yeah I think that's a great a great sort of like distinction. so Pedro, give us give us one sentence not written by a lawyer with a million clauses.
2: That's a very tricky one, I saw, right you know that. For me, from the legal perspective, there's nothing to say in itself. There's nothing essential about the definition of essential workers. So it might be a very mysterious and open phrase, but uh, for me, the uh, uh, point of departure on the legal reflection should be. Uh, that the the category essential worker and essential workers are both very politically uh, influenced and uh, defined in the context. Brazilian law has always defined uh, what is uh, outsourceable uh, in terms of work uh, regarding their essentiality to the employer. So if you have an activity that is very strongly connected to the ends of your uh, enterprise, for instance, uh, if you're a restaurant, you cannot, uh, uh, in principle, outsource cooks or uh, if if the activity is connected to what we call in Brazil, uh, the end activities, this is considered to be essential. Uh, So, and after 2017 in our labor reform in the country, uh, the claim of essentiality uh, regarding the work has changed completely. And so first, all the unessential work uh, could be outsourced, resulting uh, resulting in more precarious arrangements of work. And usually, those kinds of works are the ones that are now claimed to be essential. For instance, cleaning and conservation, and uh, those are were the first ones to be outsourced. But now, what, what we've seen is that um, uh, after the uh, 2017 reform, uh, our country started to treat all kinds of work as unessential to the end of the uh, of the uh, enterprise. So we have uh, now. Uh, uh, if you own any kind of company, you can outsource basically everything. So there is not anymore a distinction between essential and non-essential for the purposes of uh, of, uh, uh, of outsourcing.
1: I would like to start with the, the where Pedro left really. So the the idea that this is a notion that is very much a contested notion in a way. Um, so. Um, I think one interesting thing that I stumbled into, um, and it's also nice that, uh, that you started with uh, the shutdown last year, um, and that um, the notion of essential workers is very much not new and it has emerged in uh, in different places. And when I was looking, I was looking around the jurisdictions in Europe that I, that I know a little better. So I went to look at my home country, Italy. Um, I looked a bit at what had happened in the UK, and I looked at the country where I live, uh, the Netherlands. Um, and one interesting thing is uh, um, I know, there were different uh, well definitions or different sets of wordings used in in the different contexts. But if you look at uh, Italy, for instance, the notion of essential workers is not so relevant as the notion of essential services indeed. And this was a notion used in order to reduce the right to, to or limit the right to strike. Uh, Uh, Traditionally. So essential services were the area in which the right to strike was severely compressed, you had to announce a strike, get authorization and so on. Um, Whereas in the UK, the notion of key workers, which has been used throughout the pandemic, uh, actually connects to a very different uh, problem and namely that of housing. Um, with the, the well, the housing crisis or the, the, the uh, exploding prices of uh, uh, accommodations in certain parts of England over the past or the UK over the past decades uh, and then a set of uh, support schemes that have been put in place by the government in order to allow such key workers uh, w- with a, a low income and still need for a housing to come and work where they were needed through supports for for um, mortgages or uh, um, additional pay and so on. So um, the the story of the terms is rather different if you look at the the different places. Well, an interesting thing is that uh, I thought it was interesting that uh, the uh, Canadian um, example started with an actual definition because we didn't have any definitions. We had very long lists, um, and these lists of sectors and jobs and occupations. You um, know, like if you look at the Italian list, it comprises ninety-nine items with a number of sub-items. Uh, however, if you try to organize this uh, this knowledge, I think it comes to two elements. Some sense that is more recognizable. That is the core infrastructure of uh, society and what is understood as this core infrastructure does change quite a lot depending on the jurisdiction. So in Italy, certain areas of the manufacturing uh, uh, sector were really crucial, whereas of course manufacturing is not that core of a thing uh, in, in the Netherlands where financial services are, for instance, something that uh, was much more crucial to the uh, well, infrastructure. But um, on the other hand, and this is most clear in, uh, in the English uh, definition, there was a question of what is crucial to the response to the virus. Um, And there you see the um, the emergence of other categories, like um, the NHS or healthcare workers uh, or workers in the broader care sector, um, and uh, teachers, lecturers had in this sense, this was uh, what sparkled my interest, a sort of an ambiguous role, because it is a bit unclear, do we consider education as a part of the crucial infrastructure? Uh, because you know we do need to go on teaching and uh, getting pupils through the system, or are they part of t- as uh, uh, the, uh, the virus response because if kids are not in education uh, then we actually need to take to have them at home and their job their uh, parents cannot do go and do other jobs that could be uh, more uh, you know crucial in other ways so uh this is something that uh, has been I, I would say probably if like thinking along in the context of the pandemic, I would see these two aspects on the one hand, the traditional core infrastructures, uh, and on the other hand, the, yeah, the, core, the virus response and uh, what these meant and the overlaps of us uh, are a, a matter that could be missed further.
3: To follow up on Candida's point uh, that there are actually a list of essential workers and um, I do have a website open and right in front of me where the government of British Columbia defines what are essential workers and I'll only give you the headings of these workers um, and see whether uh, it makes sense or not. So essential workers would fall under these broad categories, health and health services. Uh, everyone nurses doctors uh, anyone related to health and then law enforcement public safety first responders that's the second category and emergency service personnel vulnerable population service providers critical infrastructure food and agricultural service providers transportation industry and manufacturing sanitation communications and information technology financial institutions and other non-health essential service providers in which includes me as a university professor, I am an essential service provider. So can you imagine any category of work that is left outside the definition of this essential? So my point here is, and this uh, nicely follows uh, the, uh, after Canada's list of essential workers. Yes, there is a definition. And then that definition, particularly under this Emergency Management Act, gives enormous amount of power to the executive to define what essential is. And now the government And the legislature is telling us everything, all of these things, including transportation, uh, construction industry, communication, financial institutions, all of these are essential. It's fascinating that how we are defining essential under an emergency, every work is essential.
2: On the idea of, uh, of the lists that limit uh, in a way, the, the, uh, or define in a way, the idea of uh, essential workers and their historical use as an anti-worker, especially anti-collective organization of workers, uh, dispositive on labor law. Uh, but it's interesting to see that the, the ILO has refused to offer a definition that it's broad and open and then they'll put elements uh, in order to define previously what, uh, what, his, uh, what uh, essential services are. And the list has also an opposite list. Things that are not considered, uh, considered according to the Committee of Freedom of Association, Magalhao, like to be essential. And when you take a look at that historically, things like uh, uh, I'm also taking a look at the list. There's things like the distribution of fuel uh, that ensure flights, fi- f- uh, filling and selling gas, canisters, sports, banking, insurance services, computer services. Those are historically, according to the. Uh, to the uh, rulings of the of the committee on freedom of association not considered to be essential for the purposes of the limit to the right to strike. So we see this sort of dispute around and a historical use that that has been very conservative around the idea of uh, of essentiality. Historically, there has been a use of the concept of uh, of essential work and essential workers that's basically or essentially conservative and anti worker. so it's uh it's a very complex to, uh, concept to deal with. Uh, because it sort of uh, plays out with the imaginaries uh, of our society that those are forms of work uh, without which uh, our society would just collapse and then uh, from that point it it has been instrumentalized by law uh, in order to restrict access to to rights basically to those workers and the COVID crisis is actually confirming and expanding this kind of language.
0: Yeah I really like this sort of distinction between sort of the definition of essential workers um, that existed prior to this moment, and then that definition that has emerged since March. We learn who is essential, um, particularly through their presence as well as their absence. Um, as soon as these workers are sort of taken away or taken out of the space, uh, they, we notice their absence, and that in some ways it makes them essential. So if you would like to all kind of comment on this role of presence absence comes to defining who is or who is an essential worker or what kind of work has essential work.
1: And this was actually very much the case in Italy. Um, and you can see the difference here because uh, and, and, and this is a matter of uh, how care is organized. And uh, um, in, in the other countries I was looking into, um, retirement homes are a much bigger thing and uh, institutionalized care, is a much more important component than in Italy, uh, where most of the care for the elderly is actually done at home, either by family members or by mostly women coming from Eastern Europe who are imported uh, into Italy to do these jobs, right? And they usually with interesting risks, for both for the workers themselves and for the elderly people they were taking care of, right? Because um, they in, in this context, in formal context, they, the workers were not, uh, yeah, Obviously, not equipped with uh, PPEs and uh, uh, other uh, forms of precaution that would make their work safer. But, uh, and, and you asked Ashton about um, absence or, or presence. Uh, but the interesting thing with this absence is that actually, or, or presence, is that these are usually very invisible presence. Uh, that we are talking about. So the people who work in the homes, of course, they're working inside the homes, and we uh, only see them in you know sometimes uh, in uh, 2 p.m. in the afternoon when everybody else is sleeping, um, and uh, and these ladies go around this ghost towns in the north of Italy, uh, taking around the dogs, and, and nobody else is alive, right? Um, so it, this is uh, uh, the, the the very intimate dimension of uh, of this work, but it applies in a very similar way to a lot of the other positions that were considered as uh, well um, necessary in uh, in this context like food delivery uh, and other aspects. What totally struck me was that um, the Italian list also included professionals like lawyers, accountants, they were also considered as essential workers who had to keep their business open under the regular conditions for no particular reason um except perhaps you know some sense of utility i like, I, I found it really interesting that uh, they would actually lobby to be on the list for for what reason this is a bit unclear except perhaps uh, for the possibility to keep their own employees uh, going and, and working with them but, but it's, it's a very strange uh constellation and then the question is do you recognize the essential workers by uh, the absence because the moment that they would disappear I'm not sure, right? So if you look at at this uh, list, the first, uh, like all the um, points that Pedro considered as as particularly uh, contentious, like, uh, um, you know, uh, uh, gas supply and uh, um, industry and IT and so on, these are all on the list of the crucial processes in the Netherlands.
0: you draw this important distinction between the ways that the essential category can both devalue labor and the laborer, um, but also in some ways, especially for domestic work or things that were not previously identified as work, can actually add, create, value, or pre- show how work can be valuable
1: of what is, some people get to be defined by others as essential workers and therefore sent to the front line to work. And some people in the political process actually get to attach that definition to themselves.
3: I am in a sense, I'm happy that more and more people are lobbying to be in that list and government is conceding to uh, uh, their demand. And it kind of suggests here in BC, it's a very popular place for people to come and live in or own a house because it's beautiful. The temperature is just right and it's ocean everywhere. It's, it's amazing. So uh, construction industry is uh, in demand. So uh, in March or April, when real estate agents were trying to be in the list of essential professionals, uh, there was some discussion of why they need to be there. And then the government did concede to their demand that they need to be in this list. In a sense, it makes me happy that the legislature and the executive here is conceding that, look here, every work is essential for the maintenance of life, health, safety, and all of that, which means that we falsely categorize them as non-essential when an emergency is over. So I like the fact of inclusion of all these activities in essential, but here's the Other piece of the puzzle, Uh, we we, we were talking about uh, the distinction between government and private employers, and here's what judges uh, say uh, when they're engaging with the idea of essential. So, uh, BC Labor Relations Board, they interpreted essential with reference to the demand side of the market not the supply side of the market and you would all know that workers stay in the supply side of the market and here's how uh, the board judges decide uh, the quasi-judicial authorities so the public is either the taxpayer for government services that is the employer or they're the shareholder for private em- in the context of private employers and therefore we need to declare it's essential in view of its public role and you would see the judges categorizing public here either as taxpayer or employer for public services and or shareholder for private the focus remains for essential service definition the focus remains public interest which should not be impeded either through strike or lockout Now, when COVID-19 outbreak happened, particularly in uh, elder care centers, so there were flare ups in one elder care center, so everyone would have COVID and there'll be many deaths reported. The government by law restricted nurses working in different care centers so that they don't end up spreading the virus. So they, now, if we question back, why would nurses or healthcare officials need to work in five different places? That's because their aspirations and need and needs are not satisfied in one place. As a worker, they did not make enough in one place or their securities or their um, insurances were not enough in one place so that they'll have to venture out to work in different places. It's only when they were spreading the virus by working in five different places that everyone realized, oh, my God, this is dangerous. And now they are restricted to work only in workplaces one place. So even if we think in terms of profit-maximizing, uh, yeah. self-interest-based argument, and I, uh, uh, even when we think in terms of market, essential really means what is absolutely necessary throughout the social life, not only in terms of emergency. That when we talk about essential, it's actually all services. Well, perhaps not a Swiss holiday, but Apart from that, most of the services are absolutely essential for our well-being and lives. I stop.
1: Uh, Can I ask what happened with the loss of income for these nurses?
3: Well, they are receiving right now what is called a hazard pay. And there is already talk that that will be stopped soon.
2: The thing with domestic work that sort of reconnects, reconnects this uh, this ne- this necessity of uh, rethinking the idea of uh, essential workers sort of brings that all up together because um, what we've seen historically is that a category of workers not only domestic workers there are informal or informal work relationships unpaid care workers which according uh, who according to the ILO are the largest category of workers in the world by far there are 650 uh, million uh, unpaid full-time domestic workers in the world, or care workers, in the world. so uh, uh, we're actually dealing with the process of, of institutional acknowledgement of this kind of work that it's been there and it's been uh, uh, invisibilized, and now it's claiming to be essential. So we have if we have something before the law that sort of claims the idea of a condition of essential. It's different from the historical uses of uh, of. Of those lists, including including for uh, for the for the purposes of uh, uh, outsourcing or the right strike, or to inhibit uh, uh, certain uh, social struggles around services that are considered to be uh, uh, publicly or privately essential, we have a new scenario in front of us. And I, I think what we need maybe to do in the legal field is sort of think essentiality in the way. Uh, the post-colonial uh, traditional things. Uh, if, if you think of uh, of Spivak's proposition of uh, of strategic uh, uh, essentialism, sort of, to, we all know that all wor- all workers should be considered essential, are not essentially something. But uh, if we temporarily take this condition and sort of present it to law in a way that is is strategically conceived uh, and attached strongly to rights such as uh, pays for this condition or access to. Uh, Uh, fundamental social rights, for instance, unpaid care workers are recognized to be essential and they do have access, for instance, to retirement or things, uh, dangerous ideas like this that sort of uh, they draw upon uh, this condition of essentiality that uh, is uh, in itself a very disputed one. But then again, uh, 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 we have a historical window of representing that uh, to law, it seems to me, and maybe uh, the direction of recognition of pace uh, or access to specific social rights to uh, to what what it, the workers that are now being recognized as be essential might be a good path
1: i am a bit curious though in which direction the, this goes so what 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 comes first because i it, it seems like so the, it, it could be it could be. Uh, that on the basis of this, you're already in such a position that you can make such a such a strong claim. Uh, but I also see it operating the other way around. So the struggle for recognition of uh, you know this kind of work, essential work, when it's actually not normally considered as as work. Um, so take the the example of uh, of Italy, uh, where the, um, the the teachers were considered essential workers, uh, but no accommodation was. Made for childcare of these people. So in in the other countries, so you know, uh, in, uh, in this may all be very uh, very luxury problems. But if you look at the Netherlands or, or England, the main reason why. Um, the key workers were defined and listed by the government uh, was the provision of childcare. So childcare access to schooling was secured for the children of uh, uh, key workers both in the UK and in the Netherlands um, on condition that both parents were uh, actually key workers even though in the Netherlands we knew uh, that hiddenly you were allowed to also send your children uh, to the daycare centre if only one of you was uh, a key worker Um, and and this was just not the case in Italy eh? so in in Italy schools closed and that was it Uh, and uh, no matter what kind of essential worker you were you did not have access to any form of structural or institutionalized care for your kids. Um, what doesn't seem obvious to me that you can unlock this mechanism of recognition of a whole, like, of care work out of the pandemic when actually when the structures of care work are so in deeply ingrained in, in one system or more systems and I uh, and I do tend to think that probably if we look at globally you know the case of Italy maybe a little more representative than the case of uh, the
2: netherlands fully agree with you candida it's very, it's, it's it, this was me trying to uh sort of uh stimulate the, the imaginaries around the, the idea of, uh, of this this uh, it's been mobilized over and over again to make people go back to work and uh and the thing with uh with care for me is a very important one to, to say is that uh, uh it's been always there as an essential part of all the arrangements that. Uh, People to do other kinds of essential work, and then in itself, there's a there's a claim. For instance, there's a book on uh, a South African uh, jurist, a very uh, uh, strong one. It's a, it's a collective uh, organized book that it's called Undervalued, Exploited, and Essential: Domestic Workers and Their Rights. So there's a claim uh, around law on domestic workers and paid and unpaid. Uh, to be recognized as essential, so it's a uh, and it, it's it's a it's it's a historical process that that's bringing up uh, institutional results. I mean, if you if you go through the publications of the ILO of the of the past year or during the pandemics, it's always a discussion also on that. But if you can try, I mean, this is purely speculation. I'm sure it is, but there's strong historical claims of uh, attaching some sort of social rights recognition to the condition. Of essentiality of, of unpaid care, and we uh, and uh, the funny thing is that in a country like Brazil, we have the, one of the most horrible and conservative governments you can ever imagine. Uh, the idea of guaranteed income became a, a, a massive thing in the country. It was imposed by the uh, of course the COVID agenda. And it's sort of uh, put in the center of the debate, and now Bolsonaro is sort of uh, in a very uh, uh, precarious political situation because he, uh, from the beginning, didn't want to do it, and then he wanted to do it in a very uh, uh, small amount. And now he's sort of hijacked by the political effects of that. Uh, the country, uh, on the past three months, has uh, has experimented uh, a level of uh, economic economic equality because of the of the of the emergency emergency. Uh, financial support that is uh, unseen in our history. So there's a thing of those multiple historical processes that are put together in the same moment. So with the so we have care workers uh, reclaiming recognition of social rights, guaranteed income, and then the pandemics come, and then the movement is a conservative and reactionary one of recognizing a bunch of sectors that are not to be considered essential, I mean, haircuts, and, uh, anyways. And uh, and so for conservative purposes, on the other hand, we have this movement coming to a point uh, in history and a, a factual one, where they're actually having access to uh, guaranteed income. So it's uh, both of those things are happening at the same time. So I, I think for me, there's a, 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 a maybe a historical window for playing. The strategic essentialism, and and in terms of uh you know you you, you speak of unpaid care workers as this broad category, there's uh, sort of becoming this essential thing in order to put forward the debate on uh, on the legal dimensions and the strengths of uh, of you know access to social work to essential workers. But it's only speculation. I agree with you. It's just like it's just a maybe wishful thing. I don't. know.
1: No, no I, I have to say, I like the idea, especially the idea of playing the essentialist card on the contingent essential designations, right? So the more this gets observed, the more it actually does the, the, the game. So I can totally see that once you start this game with the beauty parlors, you have a great card, like you actually have a great game in your hands.
4: I'd love to hear more about situations where people are using the category of essential worker. It, it, it clearly is used a lot to restrict labor rights. But the the and maybe this is a question that's coming particularly out of a place where we have such a weak welfare apparatus and such weak labor protections, legal labor te- protections. I, um, so I'm wondering if there are ways that um, the, that category of those places where it's being used to assert greater legal protections. Um, for you know, super mentioned hazard pay for nurses, but but more extensive claims of things like hazard pay, improved health services, a more robust labor protections than they might have otherwise. For example protections that you won't lose your job if you miss if you miss work time, that sort of thing, and and. I suppose, in part, uh, you know, one impetus behind this whole series is that I am seeing COVID as uh, a possible opportunity to kind of push open the door a bit on labor rights for both paid and unpaid workers. Um, so, so I so thinking about that also in the realm of um, of non-market care work that that, that Pedro has been talking about.
3: Respond to that, uh, Jocelyn. I found it really interesting that uh, the intention being pushing open the door. Uh, I remember a couple of years back, I gave a paper on social reproduction at Queen's University in Kingston, uh, in Canada. And then when I told that uh, a market cannot take cognizance of anyone's work because market only uh, could value the exchangeable component of everyone's work. Now, here, here is a quick example. I'm an essential worker according to the definition under law. Now, in my employment contract, I have to do 40%, I'll be evaluated on the basis of 40% teaching, 40% research, and 20% services. But as soon as I joined the university, sometimes back, I was told I I had mentors and senior scholars talking to me. I was told that I have to love my students. And uh, when I look back in my employment contract, love was not a component in there. So i was not appointed to love my student i was appointed to teach research and do services now uh, and my argument was this love component market could never compensate for and uh, then i was asked if that's your position that applies to across a broad range of services and work because uh, there is only a market in its ability to compensate or take cognizance of work is quite limited. And my position was, yes, there is care in every work we do. It depends on what is the, how, what ratio of care and skills that one brings into the market. But I think your your suggestion about pushing open the door, I think I do see that happening as well, particularly with respect to COVID. And I like that fact, Uh, not only I did mention hazard pay, but there are also some um, preferential treatment if if essential workers were to fall sick and all that. However, I would like to bring in a word of caution in here. Uh, So far I have referenced only Canada and it's all good when countries have wealth, they have resources. But if I compare Canada with India, workers are dying there. Migrant workers were not allowed to travel from one place to another. As soon as they boarded the train, hundreds and thousands of migrant workers had COVID. And there in Global South, primarily, we have states that do not have enormous amount of resources at their disposal. So their means of promoting workers' rights and workers' interests are primarily by means of the market because a state has a very limited capacity. So in expanding, at least during the time of an emergency, in expanding the nature of rights, it's difficult and it's contingent upon resources. Uh, uh, And that takes us to a much broader problem because these states in global south, they have been made to commit to Uh, the international market regime. So neoliberal market regime, they have been made to commit to, which meant that over the last 25 to 50 years, what they have done is they have destabilized the state-based mechanism that had taken cognizance of worker and that had been means to redistribute. So uh, I, I think when we are talking about pushing open the door, we also have to be cognizant about that there are limits to push open this door.
2: Uh, I'm pretty pessimistic about the uses that historically have, have been associated to the category best, uh, the category essential work and essential work. From my perspective, especially on Latin American uh, labor regulation, it's been always an, a, a reactionary category in the end. Uh, first, for an inhibiting, uh, Self-organizing of workers and unionizing uh, in key sectors of, of the economy and state organization. The recognition of a right to strike to public servants. Uh, public servants in the country is a very long and um, uh, sometimes very conservative uh, uh, legal discussion, and it's been always mobilized in this direction. The only time that I've seen the idea of essentiality of a worker be used in a slightly different way but no not less ambiguous is the the one uh, regarding outsourcing so back in the day if you were considered to be a worker that is essential to the economic activity you could not be outsourced and that means your employer would have to have a formal contract with you directly and pay all your labor rights so uh, that's this was sort of the the way those workers in a very uh uh, relational and limited per- perspective were considered to be essential and had rights associated to it, the right not to be outsourced, uh, considering that in Brazil, outsourcing is a more precarious way of hiring. And uh, you have sort of a factual reduction of rights. You you end up uh, earning less money, having worse working conditions. So the idea of essentiality was sort of uh, attached to this condition, but in a very ambiguous way, because the definition of essential workers ended up with the definition of non-essential workers, those who could immediately be outsourced and those were the ones that you know are, are always it's always a black woman doing the uh, the cleaning of the public building it's always you know people living in the favelas it's always the workers in the worst conditions that were considered to be non-essential for this purpose so it it's been used but always building up on the country on the recognition of certain uh, precarious uh, social uh, you know conditions as as the ones that can be uh, outsource, So there's a, there's, for me, I'm really pessimistic about it. And that's why I, I, I try to stimulate the, uh, the imaginaries to sort of retake the category and rethink it. The case of Rio, which could happen also in any city in India, that uh, it's uh, very symbolic to the those ambiguities, is that the fact is that back in the day, I think in March, I think. Uh, the first person to die from COVID in Rio was actually a domestic day worker who are inherently, in, according to Brazilian labor law, always informal. You cannot uh, formally hire a day worker uh, as a domestic worker. And she went to uh, her... Uh, her uh, 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 boss's house for the the weekly cleaning, and they just came back from a trip to Europe. It's always the same thing. They were, they were in Italy, and then uh, they brought cold, and then she went back home, living in the favela, and she, she was the first one to die. So it's a it's a thing of uh, people do consider in the social uh, circulation uh, those forms of the most precarious and vulnerable forms of work to be essential to their lives if you talk to a middle-class uh family in brazil they're all gonna say that you know i need my domestic work there's no way i cannot live without her because uh, i have a lot of things to do i have to work and this is so deeply rooted in our uh, uh especially latin america the, the model of hiring uh domestic work that's very it's it's very strongly attached to it and then when you when you you, you sort of uh, overlap those two conditions the domestic workers that are hired and hire considered to be socially uh, essential and their lack, absolutely lack of rights, it's a horrible combination. It would only be worth trying to savage and reinvent the, ca- the category of uh, essential worker if it was strongly attached to this strategic uh, sort of approach and attached to, of course, uh, the recognition of our rights. But to my knowledge, at least in Latin America, there's no such a thing as, a, as an additional pay for the fact that you are essential.
3: I'm going to quickly follow up on that. candidate. I'll give you the mic in a moment. But um, I wanted to make a general point that law is essentially a conservative discipline. Never, anywhere, I have never heard in the history of the world that law led to revolution. It does not, because law follows revolution. Law follows social change. Law is, law consolidates any change that happens in society. So, law always follows, so it 's essentially by definition it 's conservative, although there are ways to uh, make effective intervention by means of law by innovative use of law. So, I think the bigger challenge for us is uh following on pedro 's point is to redefine our worldview, and uh, that 's what I think is absolutely essential before uh thinking uh, of the role of law in changing our perspective it 's very unlikely. Although I don't want to dismiss it totally, but it's very unlikely that law will change our world. Our worldview needs to be changed uh, and then law will follow. That's, That's how I understand being a lawyer.
1: Is, I am slightly more optimistic than that. So law does have an important normalizing function. One, you know, it, it's it's a bit like with everything, if you repeat it often enough, it becomes sort of normal. And that's even more the case if you manage to repeat that in, in something that has some sort of binding force or normative force, right? So, so I don't, um, and I think there's plenty of examples in uh, constitutionalism after Second World War, which was programmatic constitutionalism trying to establish better societies, and I think to a certain extent, we're still enjoying, we don't know for how long, but we're still enjoying the benefits of that, um, of this programmatic dimension of the law, not of you know anything that was achieved that like, um, something like what you mentioned, like an analogy between um, the workers working through the pandemic and uh, um, military has been made by some people in the UK to claim assault pay Uh, for NHS uh, workers, it gained some traction but ultimately it landed nowhere. I totally see the point about resources like what like what kind of resources are going to be pumped into this and we saw how this played out very differently uh, in, the, in the pandemic in, in Europe where uh, like this the, the condition of essential workers was like a, a good attribute for uh, middle class urban people who could then send their kids to school uh, but was not as good for the Romanian uh, meat plant workers that were being bussed to Germany from their countries uh, in order to work work in the meat plants where German people would not be working uh, or a year to work in the tulip fields to collect like to pick flowers that could actually not be shipped uh, and therefore just that were laid down. Now we have looked at this public law qualification all the time of essential workers where these either came with some obligations restrictions to freedoms or some uh, entitlements in the public sphere uh, bonuses or benefits or, or something like that uh, but the question that is missing is how this affects the relationship with your employer so in uh, in the example that in, in the old-fashioned idea of uh, like somebody being essential to the operations and therefore uh, not being suitable for uh, you know outsourcing you you gain the right vis-a-vis your employer and what we have been missing entirely in, in the pandemic is this dimension of actually this relational uh, dimension and, and what you gain in a contractual relationship so to say like if we want to think of redistribution, this is not only a matter of taxes. So this was why we built the labor structures because the distribution had to take place exactly at the level of the work floor. Uh, and, and I think if you want to use this strategically, you need to keep both areas together, both the area of social recognition, but also the recognition in the employment relationship and in within the structure and uh, of production uh, of, of value and reclaiming this value vis-a-vis who, you know your counterparty was actually extracting the value right now you you cannot go around that and this applies in uh, in british columbia as it applies in india i would say
2: uh, on shapiro's point on uh, how law does not change and uh, of course i agree and any, anyone in the field of law knows very well that i mean because uh, we are uh, trying to sometimes and for good or for bad but then it's it's not that that easy but at the same time i think law is being currently sort of I don't know if the word exists in English, interpelled or sort of a uh, uh, interpolated. I don't know. So it's it's being called upon to react in face of some historical processes that are in place at the same time in a very strange way. So I'll just like for you know to make a quick remark on the it's this is a a series on care in times of COVID. So to think care specifically in face of the category essential work, it, it is a sort of a historical moment in which there's an alignment of things that are tracing back to, you know, struggles that are very, very much beyond the the context of the pandemics that is in place. When you you see the World Health Health Organization uh, issue the first directions regarding the pandemics, it's always like, take care of yourself, take care of your family, take care, take care, 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 a thousand times care. And then you see governments around the world sort of saying in a way or being uh, made to say is that, you know, you stay home and we'll take care of you. I mean, and uh, we will give you money in order for you to take care of your family or society or whatever. I mean, you're gonna have to quit working for a little bit. So it's the structure of, of, of this historical claim of, you know, one possible uh, response to the, the care crisis or the, or the dimension of not recognition of the value of care being put in place. This is big for me. It's, uh, we've, we're actually seeing a lot of countries that refuse strongly to experiment a structure that attaches social rights to the process of care being put in place. And uh, this is being pushed down the throat of very conservative regimes. And uh, and it, it does have effects uh, on, the, on the role, on the part that law can play in social change. Because from the point where this is experimented as a, as a social phenomenon in history, you might have a reaction saying that you know I've been always taking care of my family and then I haven't had any recognition and now during the pandemics to do so, you're sort of acknowledging that. So it's a it's a uh, there's sort of a, a a thing happening there. So and I think there's there's role for law to take on the category of essentiality and attach to the uh, to the care processes and say those processes are socially essential and they do need a structure of rights that will recognize and value them. That's that's my point here. This is not guaranteed, of course, historically. But there's there's movements going on around it that involve not only social pressures, public debate, but also institutional change and legal change. For us, I mean, in, in my perspective, we can now claim that there is a a right to the access to minimum rights to unpaid care workers because we've seen it. I mean, we've seen the pandemics. This is essential. So it's a, it's a new way that the legal world might, you know, think. But then again, I'm very pessimistic on the uses that are historically accumulated, but I need to be, we need to be optimistic about what we can do around this very specific, you know, historical event that is changing the way we see care in the end, because uh, it's very visible at this point.
3: I'm thinking that we have workers' interest in mind, and if that is the case, then we should not be defining essential uh, only on urgency basis. So if we define essential on the basis of social necessity, I think we have to do away with the exclusivity of identifying essential with disaster or emergency. And that's where I think many of the comments converged into is that this is an opportunity to expand the understanding of what is essential. Uh, We need to legally understand essential as non-urgent, but fundamentally necessary uh the socially relevant work or socially injury work so that's my little comment then
1: i do think yes the like as as much as i try to push forward uh private law as the solution to pretty much everything uh, i do think that the answer to uh, your last question is very much in like a decent social security scheme where this will be covered by you know uh institution or uh, uh, yeah professional disease and uh, and social security.
0: Well, I think we can all sort of agree, you know, follow the sort of HLA heart approach, which is that, you know, law is both structured by and limited by language, right? And so essential is at some point, that is a term that is structured and gains meaning in society. And so I think that what we've all been discussing here, is the way that this term is actually in a moment of flux and that we can really entrench this conservative definition of essential as Pedro and everyone else really laid out, um, or we can imagine how the term essential might be leveraged to actually reverse this kind of race to the bottom in which workers are being forced to work um, and actually move into a ratchet to the top. But as Shafriya points out, um, we have to ask, whenever we're talking about ratchets to the top, not just with essential work, we have to ask a ratchet to the top for whom and in what circumstances and in what locations. And so I think this was a very essential conversation today.